Hi, I'm John. Hi, I'm Ed. Hi, I'm Joss. And um, this week on PAX Podcast, we're going to talk about the Balkans and its eternal places at Imperial Frontier. Yeah, Balkans. It's, it's, it's never fun in the Balkans. <laughs> no, generally um, not a great time. Not, not a great thing to have something uh, named after you, Balkanization, as a as a phrase yeah when when you have an entire phrase for country collapsing based on a region something something's wrong you know nobody talks about belgiumization no no but no, maybe no. they should maybe they should i mean uh, we're joined today by uh, our first guest um i'm very excited to say uh joss who is a, a friend of ours from um a place we're not going to mention in public <laughs> absolutely 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 not what this is about <laughs> we're not going to no. talk about that no, no we never uh, will Friends for what? God, it's been like five years. Oh God, I think so. Yeah, like six, six, uh, six, six years. Six, six, is six, six oh years. Oh my God, it's, six oh. years. Oh, <laughs> God. Um, and uh, um, so yeah, uh, Joss, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, about what you studied, what papers you've written that you've really that lead us to what we're talking about today in the Balkans. Sure thing. Uh, well, welcome. No, welcome. No, hi everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here in the Pax Podcast. So my name is uh, Jocelyn, which is uh, as you may have guessed, I'm French. I'm from the French Republic. We're sorry, uh, everyone. Yeah, see, <laughs> we tried really there, hard for the first guest not to be French. There comes the racism again. Uh, <laughs> and no, jokes aside, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a security consultant. Uh, I'm a graduated researcher in contemporary history and international relations. And I've been doing my specialization on the Balkan. So I've written, I've just defended my thesis on the modern day Serbia uh, after the Mil- uh, revolution that overthrew the Serbian dictator Slobodan Milosevic in 2000 and the, and the later democratic government that lasted up until 2003, up until the assassination of Zoran Djindic, uh, which was the, who was the reformist prime minister. So I, this was my specialization and I wrote several articles throughout my, my curriculum, uh, focusing mostly on former Yugoslav affairs, so Croatia, Serbia, but extending it as well to uh, Ukraine, um, or to the Balkan, Poland, and Romania as well. Uh, so this has mostly been my curriculum, but yeah, mostly mostly Balkan focused, really. And it's, it's the subject of today. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good spread. It's a good spread. I mean, it's it's interesting, of course, because we're going to try and do a sort of big staff ride all the way through Balkan history's frontier, but that your focus on the end of the Balkans, which we'll get to at the end of the podcast, yeah. is quite interesting because even yeah. that is sort of imperial story of the sort of Serb, uh, Serb empire over the South Slavs falling apart quite yeah. dramatically. But yeah, I think the sort of two starting points I want to go for sort of the quest, the, the great historian's trick of asking a question, you know, the answer to, which is, are the Balkans cursed to be this great European imperial frontier? Because throughout history, they are this border between Europe and Asia in a way that Russia forms and other parts of the Mediterranean forms. But uh, is you know this question of are the Balkans always go were they destined to always be this imperial frontier? Is it a curse of geography, a curse of history, or is it explicitly made so? And I think Joss, in our prelims, you've been talking about the, this sort of imperial logic of the Balkans that everybody sort of wants to they want to have a hand on it, but they don't want to have put the effort in to make it fully integrated because it's just this difficult place to be. So you're Absolutely. gonna run us through that sort of overarching idea absolutely yeah 
Yeah, which is something which has been, you know, something all across history. Like, I'm, I'm no specialist of the ancient era, so that may be more John and there, but that's been the logic. Oh, not me. I don't like drafting. anything where I can't look at four sources. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the same as me. Like, if, 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 if there's no gunpowder in it, it's not interesting. But yeah, yeah that's I'm just me. Gonna put up with, <laughs> I've got a wet flannel. That's my source. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a whole book about it. <laughs> there's, just, there's just some mug's face on this flannel. You've got to sort of work around this. <laughs> But yeah, uh, no, but just aside, yeah, you can see uh, everything. Well, you can say the Balkans are cursed, mostly geographically, because as, as you may know, the Balkan and Peninsula are kind of stuck in the way they are. And they always have been a place where populations have migrated. Obviously, we'll talk about, about Macedonia, North Macedonia, if you may call it today, uh, which is which may be the most striking example of population shifts. Uh, you could say Kosovo, Albania as well. But all of this has helped create this image of instability that has been inherent to the Balkan, what we'd say, like, we're not going to go over the medieval feeds that, um, foods that happen in, well, you know, Albania, Bosnia, uh, Serbia, Serbia before they were, before the Ottomans came in, were uh, deeply Christian, Christian kingdoms, but all of them, basically, the Balkan always had a logic of instability due to political, geographical, and most importantly, demographical reason, which, you know, and still are today, up to today, in 2000, uh, to 2023 so yeah it sort of is both it it's this thing when everybody wants the balkans to be stable but nobody's particularly interested in everyone sort of realizes that if you let it stabilize a bit the people of the balkans might interfere in their imperial projects yeah and i think that even that comes back to to how the, even the greeks and romans view yeah. it so i think that if anything yeah. that's sort of where the the international imperial mind about the balkans starts in some senses. Would you agree, Ed? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's that's probably the right way to look at it. I, I mean, for a lot of ancient history, the Balkans are completely um, othered, and you're viewing them through either a Greek or a, uh, a Roman lens. And a lot of that is uh, has to do, you know, with, with obvious things, the fact that the Greeks and Romans are literate societies and that we have their, their written sources. So that's partly why we see through their eyes. But then also we have sort of a, a Renaissance um, angle on it where people are obsessed with Greek and Roman writing. They love Greek and Roman culture. And for that reason, they view as Greek and Roman culture is superior. And therefore these uh, Balkan societies, you know, the Dacians, the Illyrians, the, 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 the uh, Sarmatians, uh, even like uh, the Huns and even the Macedonians as well. Even these kingdoms are othered they are misunderstood and because they don't fit into the very neat categories created by 19th century classicists for greek and roman history uh they're basically ignored and they're viewed as simple you know barbarians for the romans to fight uh trajan and augustus fight wars in uh, in the balkans obviously that becomes an issue with alexander the great um because Greek history loves claiming Alexander the Great um, under its own, uh, as part of its own development. You know, Alexander is a very important person in Greek history because of his conquest of the Persian Empire and then the spread of Greek culture basically around the entire um, Eastern Mediterranean. And obviously that process of Hellenization um, is really, really important to helping the Roman Empire to function in later life. Uh, so... What we're left here is that uh, the Macedonians play a really important role in 
Greek history and Roman history, but the Macedonians themselves are not fully part of Greek history. They get sort of let in the back door when it's very convenient for Greek historians to do that. So Macedonian culture, we know very little about it, or we, we know more, but compared to, to other societies, it, it is surprisingly little, you know, that they have um, very different institutions and living arrangements. So obviously Macedon is ruled by um, hereditary kings. Uh, their cities are they're not very urbanized. You know, it's probably not correct to talk about um, Macedonian cities in the same way as, as Greek cities. You know, the imperial capital, uh, Pelas, is um, com compared to even sort of a modest Greek city state, it, it doesn't it doesn't have sort of like the monumental architecture to, to go sort along of you with arrive with like, where's the Agora? Guys, come on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, um, you know, uh, Macedonian kings, polyamory is very uh, common. So I, Alexander the Great had three wives uh, by the time he died. And his father, I think, um, had more, something like five. And even, even uh, incest is sort of not entirely looked down upon um, if, if it's kept within a, a royal family. But also there's the problem, of course, which is that all of, all of these concepts, which, are, of course, the Romans and Greeks have looked down upon, we only know the Macedonians have because of Roman and Greek sources. Mm, absolutely. And so, probably, am I presuming one source? Uh, well, um, kind of. We, we don't have the, the, the best first-hand sources for Alexander the Great. So the, the best first-hand <laughs> source is the uh, sort of the writings of Alexander's general Ptolemy, so we know Ptolemy wrote a history of Alexander's conquest, but that hasn't survived to the modern day. But there are lots of indications that it did survive to uh, Roman times. And then when we get Roman biographies of Alexander by, uh, you know, one by Plutarch and by, especially by Arian, who was, a, I think he was a first, first or second century AD writer. So he's writing, you know, some 400 to 500 years after Alexander. Yeah, it's still he's, he's it's the one still an immense distance. Yes, <laughs> and it's exactly. still the most authoritative because that's the problem, of course. Which is, I mean, it comes up a lot with discussions around the Balkans all the way through history, which is that it is this spot in Europe where people are willing to just cast massive political and social aspersions on. Yeah, you know, it's it's treated yeah. as this sort of spot of civ uncivilization. Except when it's convenient. Except, yeah, which exactly. is exactly. Which is something very important. You mentioned that, which is something very interesting, like Greek historians only letting Macedonians in with the back door. And this this is not only uh, only when it suits their narrative, if I were to say so myself, which is something that well, is not only proper to Greek, to Greece, sorry, but has been for the entirety of the Balkan countries, which has been true to Serbia, which has been true to Croatia as well, because all of these, especially Macedonia, as you mentioned it, serve to build a national identity, uh, a national identity which has been something tremendously important for all Balkan states, especially since you know the 20th century, and that's something Greece has experienced itself when it faced different uh, different military regimes in in the uh, in the late uh, 19, um, 20th century, which is yeah, which is something crucial. It's great you mentioned it with Macedonia, with historians only letting what they want in the national we say um in france we have the term national novel which is say an, an official history that only suits a part of it like for france it would be like oh you know all of france resisted during world war ii despite the fact that we had a very okay, I, in france but sorry yeah. the line national novel is because you know we 
in Britain, we I think the closest you get to that phrase would be you say here's something in children's book, children's history book, saying like, basically it's our island story. But what that doesn't really convey is the important part of national novel, which is is kind of a bit made up. Like you say, <laughs> yeah, exactly. our island story or the British you need story. A, you it's need like, an oh, editor. that could be real, but like no, it's national novel. That is fic- that is fiction. It's being edited. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, so just just to end of it, it's just true. Macedonia and only getting the bits of previous history that interests you has been a logic going on with mostly all Balkan countries, with the Greeks, Serbia, and Croatia mostly. But yeah, I just wanted to say a few words on that. Yeah, no, but yeah so the, the, the ambiguity of Alexander basically allows um, lots of modern Balkan countries to sort of vaguely claim <laughs> some aspect of uh, either inheriting Macedonian culture or Greek culture, ancient Greek culture rather, and uh, and then they can sort of build up some sort of political legitimacy and historical legacy that way. Yeah. That ambiguousness in the ancient era around national identity is sort of important when it comes to Balkan state forming and the creation of the national novel, isn't it? Because like you look at places like Italy or France or Britain, there's a direct, you can follow a clear line through. Our national stories are easy to sort of, you know, France can go back as far as Vercingetorix if it wants. Britain goes back to sort of Boudicca and that kind of stuff. Whereas in the Balkans, because the populations are, as you say, they move and they're migratory and national area and the boundaries, there's no natural boundaries. It's so much harder to build a national story. And it's so much easier for a foreign power to justify treating it as a frontier and as part of its own territory. Because of course the most interesting period point about the Balkans means this is total frontier, but for nearly a century, Byzantium, Constantinople, you're the center of the world in many aspects. It's just around the corner. You know, the, the Romans moved their capital east to become a Balkan frontier. And yet the Balkans is still a frontier to them. You know, the Byzantines, I think you were saying that the Joss earlier that the Byzantines are core in this conflict with the Serb Empire for centuries. Yeah. Even before there is really a concept of a Serb Empire, they're fighting with people in the same region. Yeah. Successes to the Dacians and the Illyrians and stuff. Because it, even though their capital and their great cities of Greece and places like Thessalonica are just on the edge of the Balkans, it's still this important frontier. Yeah, which is the only slee the Serbs when they settled in the area. So the Serbs only originally came from well, the steppes and settled first in uh, in Germany, which is known as White Serbia, later Sorabia, which is just below, and then they went down to the Balkan. Yeah. And well, Christianized themselves, and yeah, they waged war with the Byzantines. Obviously, not continuous war, but waged war over the Byzantines up until Constantinople fell. Up until Kosovo Polje, which was a thirteen eighty nine, when the Serb, when the Serbs actually fell to the Ottoman rule, and they waged war for centuries, only claiming to be the real house, to be the real house of the empire, because the Serbs Christianized themselves and only weakened each other, which has been, you know, an inner frontier which the Balkan were an inner frontier and claimed to be, and the Ottomans obviously were also looking to expand their own frontiers coming from Asia, as you mentioned, were just looking at them, each other, killing each other, because that's what the, that what the Serbs and Byzantine did. For centuries, they weakened each other up to the point where the Ottomans stepped in, and obviously that would be a simplification, but just whooshed in and captured the entirety of the peninsula, because only a country that claimed, that claimed to control the area, that was the Serb Empire, grew over, over the centuries up to where it reached its peak of importance in the, in the 13th century 13th to 14th century just waged war with the relative power that was a byzantium only to weaken themselves and later to fall 
because again the whole thing uh, the whole gist of the country if i was to say the whole gist of the country uh, this conflict was to find an identity and define themselves and find a national entity if i were to say yeah because that's that's the sort of conflict of the early medieval up to the fall of Byzantium, which is that the, the actual emperors in Constantinople aren't very good at this. So there is this up for grabs concept that if somebody can get in there, take over and do it yeah. properly, they can be the heir to Rome. You know, the Crusaders have a go at it. The, the Turks do, because you have the Sultanate of Rome. But there's a point where there are three Ro there are three emperors of Rome. There's one in Serbia, there's one in Byzantium, and there's one in Anatolia. And they all call themselves the emperor. And everyone's just kind of like, okay, who's who's actually... Who's who, yeah. Who's who, but they're all doing it at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's the interesting point, is it's about this search for national identity being found in imperial identity as well. So you're, the only way to prove your sovereignty is to prove your imperial might. And as much of that is tied to the claim to tradition and the claiming tradition as it is to actual... Imperial conquest. You know, the, the Byzantine Empire continues to call itself such and be considered a powerful state, even when it is massively reduced in size and power mm. and is basically doing what the Venetians tell them to do. Yeah, which is just just rather silly, but always has been always has been the logic animate, animating this. And even even funnier with that, with all those claims of being an empire, which later on most of the Balkan countries claim to be Byzantine heirs, like later when the when the Ottoman Empire collapsed. But Serbia, Albania, obviously Greece, all of them claim to be up to the Serbian flag, up to the Serbian flag with the with you know they gathered the four seas of the Byzantine mm. flag and put it in the middle of the coat of arms, claiming to be the heirs of the empire. Albania also claimed to be by you know using a, a double-headed eagle as well. Yeah, everybody's got everybody's got there. Everyone's couching themselves in the imperial symbology. Yeah. And I think part of that is also because, you know, when they're doing that, it's at a time when essentially those national novels are being written, you know, France, England, Germany, Italy, they're all building these national histories, these national myths that, you know, Italy is natural, which, you know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. natural. Yeah. But even like France, you know, the country, a country which rolled its dice for natural borders and rolled three sixes. Yeah. Like has to invent its it's an hexagon. Yeah. Like it's got everything it wants for a national natural border, the national identity, and yet it has to invent a national story. It has to homogenize its own language. And that's France. They they got it easy. Yeah, but still, we, we, we still claimed when it was still absurdly bad when we claimed to the colonies, like in Algeria and Sub-Saharan Africa, that the, the, the national novel was here everywhere when they were teaching, you know children from Gabon that you know the ancestor were the were Gallian, which is not even true not even not even for French people like, what, they're definitely like, not Galian we're, we're definitely like, what, more Roman what is Gallian. the point of that <laughs> <laughs> like, know, just, what are you doing <laughs> just national novel like, well, yeah. I mean I I still think the best part of this is a side note is when de Gaulle's like everyone is everyone of the French empire is now a French citizen France is one big country and then somebody just pulls out a slide rule it's like you know the rules going to ask for healthcare and railways and shit. And they all go, fuck. <laughs> Actually, you know what? You're not French anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. But yeah, no. But uh, obviously, you, you know, there has been something which can be linked to Macedonia as well, which has been the logic of domination in the Balkan as well. Mm -hmm. But you know, a whole gist of it. So I hope, I sincerely hope, they're not Croatian or Serbs. Explain. 
explaining this because through the course of my research and articles published have been called pro croat and pro serb at the same time which has which has been a rather interesting just, theory just, just to which, clarify this is both a pro croat <laughs> and a pro serb podcast <laughs> <laughs> for legal purposes yeah. we are a yugoslav podcast yeah essentially yeah. No. okay, <laughs> okay no, no, you, no, you, no, you, no you're gonna get the lb this, this podcast oh, no. is the free <laughs> city of trieste it's the secret third group and we've turned them against us <laughs> no, but the, the whole logic of it that, you know, there's been a logic of domination dominating each other, which, which has been clearly not to take out of context that sentence, but which just has been of showing how stronger you are to the others. Like, you know, the whole, there is a logic of invalidation of ethnicities as well, which has been going on in the nationalistic renewal in the 90s. You know, the whole thing of it is saying Croatia, if you're a Serb, if you're nationalist Serb, you're going to say, no, you know, Croats don't exist. They're Catholic Serbs. If you're a nationalist Croat, you're going to say Serbs don't exist. They're Orthodox Croats, which has been something going on as well, because in the nationalistic renewal, so something which has been existing, which dates back to, you know, the well nationalist ideas of the medieval century and later the anti-Ottoman feeling. In the 90s, there was a the whole thing of it. So, you know, we have a national identity propped up by a national level, but, you know, we may go further than that and invalidate other people by claiming once again that they're just offsprings of a great nation, you know? I mean, it's this sort of strange, in a way, both very pre-nationalism and post-nationalism ideas about nationhood, which is that, yeah. you know, nationhood is when you control, which is a pre, and then you have to build a national story. So, you know, to the, to the Serb, the Serb saying the Croat is really an offshoot of the Serb is both a, a natural extension in some ways of imperial identity but also of sort of post Versailles nationalism like you gotta you're both saying I can be in charge because yeah. I beat you but also I can be in charge because we're actually the same person yeah how important is the the Treaty of Versailles in in, in determining not only what the Balkans look like um today but also the, the different um the different national groups that are that are represented and, and are then not represented I mean, I'd, I'd say the the Treaty of Versailles probably just confirms a lot of our national national identities that are in flux across the 19th century. But it's not really, they're not really set in stone by Versailles. If anything, they're vindicated yeah. and set in, set in line by things like the Balkan Wars. You know, Trinan and played an important role as well. Yeah, basically, yeah, because for those who have not done their British yeah. GTSE history. <laughs> the Treaty of Trianon is when they turn around and basically tell the Hungarians, no, fuck you, you don't get to rule other people. They served, sorry, that was it. <laughs> okay, I mean, <laughs> Hungary, at that point, it's been over a century. Hungary is still not over the Treaty of Trianon. It would yeah. be funny if the country wasn't run by lunatics. But, <laughs> I mean, hot take of the episode. The, uh, the worst part of the Austrian Empire in the late 19th century is the Hungarians. Yeah. No, seriously. Trianon wasn't hard enough. Yeah. Like me. The, <laughs> no, I mean, that's not an official podcast line, but we'll run with it. The, <laughs> the guest line. The guest line. But the, the Austrian, by the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the Austrians are kind of reaching a point where they're understanding the only way to keep the empire going is to embrace a form of pluralism. You know, mm. Franz Ferdinand, bless his mad soul, was kind of like gearing up for a a much more federated empire. You know, he was going to create a triple monarchy. The Serbs of... killed the best ally. Yeah, they did, because yeah. that's, that's history. But yes, he was going to create a third kingdom. You know, there's going to be a kingdom of Austria, the king of Hungary, and then a kingdom of the Slavs, basically. 
and that tripartite thing, but the Hungarians weren't going to allow that because it would undermine the principle of the Hungarian kingdom and of Hungarian and of Magyar nationalism, which is that the Hungarians have a right to rule everyone else. But listen, it's the Austrian part of the Austrian Empire had near universal suffrage by 1914, and in the Hungarian part, you could only vote if you were a landed Hungarian. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Wow. Like it had there were more voting rights in parts of Poland. It was it was just really poor. So no, yeah, you're right. One of the most important part of defining the Balkans was the except was Trianon hammering into stone that the Balkans have a right to govern themselves. Yeah. How exact? What exactly that looked like was complicated. I mean, there's a sense in which arguably the important part of Versailles is that everybody looks at Serbia having the shit kicked out of it for four years and goes, "Okay, they want all this. I guess we should probably give them all of this." Yeah, but you know, before that, there was a whole idea in Serbia that, like, Serbia at the end of the of the 20th century was chiller than a lot of people would think, in the sense that it was known to be a fairly liberal nation. You talk about the end of the 19th century, yeah, the end of the 20th century. Oh, sorry. Well, no, we're definitely, not definitely, not, <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah, Milosevic is definitely not. Let's just clarify that. This is not a pro Milosevic podcast. No, definitely not liberal. Sorry. It's the end of the 19th century. Serbia was known to be a fairly liberal country, which has been very influenced by French, French ideas when the country, when the country uh, reached its independence in the 19th century. And as you know, Serbia, especially Belgrade, was this hot spot of political parties like Serbia had a ridiculous amount of political parties, still do, and ridiculous numbers of newspaper, and you had a very active political life. And this was pissing off Vienna very much because all of Serbia was doing was basically, well, you know, we all, we're all brothers, so we should unite. And this was basically was resounding throughout Bosnia, throughout Croatia. That's where also the war was fought. And when the war ended and when the Kingdom of Croat, Serbs and Slovene was created because the term Yugoslavia didn't exist before 1929, it was actually a fairly liberal state. But it was horrible because the ideals quickly died after the creation of the country because we have a right to govern ourselves. So we have a right, we also have a right to not govern ourselves. Yugoslavia was a clear, well, the kingdom of Croats, yeah. Serbs, Croats, and Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes was a whole mess for 10 years when basically none of the communities would like to work together because obviously you had this mass of not uh, necessarily. I wouldn't say educated people, but people that didn't necessarily know about how the country would work. Like, imagine that you had people coming from Macedonia, from uh, the former Austrian province of Croatia, of Illyria and Bosnia. And so nationalists reached power, especially in Croatia, because obviously Yugoslavia, the kingdom was founded by the Serbs, who centered it in the Serbs. So it was very unstable. So to clear that instability that peaked when Stepan Radic, one of the leader of Croatian autonomy, Autonomy. The autonomy, thank you, was killed in the live debate in the parliament. And as again, as you mentioned this, this was scripted by the script of the Yugoslav parliament. Which yeah, the, scripted I had a look, actually. You, yeah. you serve, the Serb had son. It's literally like gunshots, yelling, screaming, and then the yeah. speaker going, order. <laughs> so error is calling for order, where the guy was literally shot at, while, while speaking. So shots, bang, bang, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. it was literally in literally the mid-sentence. Mid, mid <laughs> Senator Maccabee has been shot. Oh, and, and you can't make references to something three people will understand. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it's that. Like, uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> we want Maccabee. No, sorry. No, that, that, would be, that, that would be an interview, though. take me back. <laughs> but um, the interesting point, of course, there is that what you've got there with the early Yugoslav state, the Serco of the Soviets, is a, an imperial state 
formed from one independent nations and sections of other former imperial states trying to work as a post-imperial federation and just it's just not working so it goes back to being an imperial an absolute state which is what happened after Radic's assassination yeah it's all it yeah. goes back to direct rule from the serfs doesn't it yeah, and it's bad because the the king Alexander the first said, "Oh, you know, democracy doesn't work." So I'm basically going to center all power in a way that creates a Yugoslav identity, so that we can resume to democracy. Okay, it doesn't work because all Alexander does is centering all the power around the Serbs, which with all all of the ministries, all of the important positions in the army. Uh, guess what? The, well, guess what that does? The Croats were pushing for more autonomy democratically you do it so in a much more fascist way and that's what leads to the rise of the ustache which uh, is coercion worth for insurgents um, which will play a very evil role in world war ii when you could say so the, well, the way of creating a national identity by forcing it just does not work and it goes back to an absolutist logic and obviously back to a fully imperial logic obviously would you say that that really the, the only real forging of a yugoslav identity was the german occupation german italian occupation the resistance, the resistance, does that forge a post-colonial, a post-imperial identity for the as? Oh, it kind of does. I think okay. it does. But all, I presume all of that is tied to Tito. So once Tito is gone, things go to shit. Yeah. I mean, it's funny how much there Tito is just a post-colonial Soviet, uh, like communist allegory for Franz Josef, in that he can hold the state together as a national identity. And then he just because collapses. he is a non imperial figure, yeah. But the moment he's gone, it can't, it can't survive. Well, one of the important things that Tito obviously has Karats and obviously uh, his movement fought against the Chet the Chetnici, also known as Chetniks during World War II, which were a loose uh, group of resistance, uh, who also fought the partisans more than for the Germans, obviously, because they were highly decentralized and had no authority, uh, contrary to the partisans, who were highly led. Tito was a Karat, so obviously welcomed a lot of them. And when he founded, when he founded Yugoslavia, he knew he, Tito knew knew his history very well and fought in the Austro-Hungarian army first off, which is an interesting fact. He knew his history very well, and he knew that a lot of the problems would be settled in Serbia, and in fact, he would empower. So a lot of Tito's thing, which is why it is really, which is why he is really disliked by a part of the nationalist Serb historiography today, is that he spent his time weakening Serbia by notably giving Kosovo its autonomous status and giving Vojvodina, the northern part, which is populated by a quarter of Hungarians, also its autonomous status, saying, if I go, if I die, Serbia has to be weakened because otherwise it will try to take over Yugoslavia again, as it has, as it has done so by the past. And guess what it did when he died? Serbia eventually <laughs> did. Yeah. Oh, so that, oh, because I was, I was looking on his page, like, so Vojvodina is a bit, they like, like, get off Hungary at, yeah. um, at the end of the Second World War, isn't it? Yeah, basically. So, yeah, it was created as an autonomous, so as an autonomous province, because you had a lot of minorities there, also a lot of Romanians, Slovaks, and it is very diverse, which is nowadays is the least cursed part of Serbia. I mean, interesting. What this, what this reflects is an article I read over the weekend by Peter Halden, which is about um, this concept of non sovereign states in the Balkans, which is that one of the ways the 19th century great powers tried to maintain tried to maintain stability in the Balkan frontier is you creating non-sovereign nations. You know, you create a Greek nation, but it's still part of the Ottoman Empire, but it's a Greek nation. Yeah, same goes for Romania. Yeah. yeah, so you do that and you have Eastern Romania, you have the same thing with um well, Serbia as well. Romania, in Serbia, yeah. And that mm. that is seen as a solution 
And the only way that sovereign nations emerge in the Balkans is when the great powers can't come to an agreement. So Greece emerges because nobody can agree to give it to the Turks because the Turks don't seem competent enough. Which There's also a, a sort of an intellectual movement at the same time in many Western countries which are pro-Hellenic independence. Yes, absolutely. So the likes of uh, Byron and Shelley raising money for Greek independence and Greek causes, yeah. and then in some cases going along to help uh, help the war effort and fight as well. And if yeah, you happen to steal, if you happen to steal I don't know, several thousand tons of Parthenon or statues yeah. or gold <laughs> on the way. It's all Suddenly it's very course. inspiring. It's very inspiring, especially, I like, you know what, I'm really inspired by this Greek national tradition. I'm going to take it home with me. Yeah, <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. Lovely. Give him, give, back. <laughs> give him the marbles. Give him the marbles. But yeah, it, it, it's interesting to see how 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 fascinating how, how how fascinating the Balkan is to great powers, because yeah. especially in the mid nineteenth century, everyone was taking an interest in it. Whether it was the Ottomans, the Russians, the French, the British, the British for Greek, the British for Greeks, the France for Serbia. Like when uh, Victor Hugo pronounced his very famous speech uh, for for Serbia. Uh, when Serbia was fighting in the uh, late 1840s, uh, Victor Hugo called for you know, United Europe and as well a prominent war support for Serbia, like calling for France to send troops actually fighting against the Ottoman. It's fascinating to see uh, everyone took an interest in it. And the Austrians later came in, obviously, with their own interest and fucked things well, up. I think it is all this, the Balkans is, a, is this sort of playing field for the balance of power. You know, Britain's involvement in the Balkans is justified in home as being about Two things, keeping the Mediterranean open. You know, Britain gets involved in Greece, not because of this help politically, because the war, the wars of independence are threatening British trade in the Mediterranean. Yeah. But they get involved with the, the when the Russians go in, in the 1870s and try and in the Russia-Turkish war, which isn't very well known in Britain. I don't know about France, but the, in the they 1870s. They really know about Crimea. Yeah, it was mm. Crimea, but everyone forgets that in the late 1870s, the Russians literally got to the gates of Constantinople. Yeah. It was really, but everyone had a freak out about it because yeah. for Britain it meant the Russians would have been able to threaten the Suez Canal, and that was anathema. And that this is a point the Austrians want to get in there to maintain their southern frontier and to contain Slav nationalism. The French want to get in there to fuck up the Austrians. Yes, which is a noble French. Tradition. <laughs> yes, a high, I, I have no problem. That is my favorite French tradition. <laughs> the, the Germans want to get in there because they can't let the Austrians collapse, and the Russians want to get in there because they're desperate for they're desperate to undermine the Austrians and get a war war to port. Anyone who's you know, it's, it's the all the lines up to get you 1914 are in play from the 1850s onwards. The Balkan are a think- sandbox. Yeah. yeah. Do you there think the lack of concern yeah. by all these great powers for the people who live in the Balkans contributes um, at all to the uh, the animosity, but also the, like I don't know. I think I always have in my head like Balkan nationalism is like on a rung higher than most other nationalisms. Y- yes. If you were to listen to Serbian songs or tribal folk or Albanian songs, you'd, you'd understand that very well and see how raging the nationalism is. I think, but, what's, yeah. but I think what it also is is that it is this microcosm, this flash, this ship, and this sort of fossilized remnant of what nationalism was like at the turn of the 20th yeah. century. You know, those songs like the, the chauvinistic, you know, kill all their wives and children, that kind of death to that that is the nationalism that was common 
everywhere in the Western world in nineteen hundred seven. You know the even in places like America, they were you know talking about the fact that every every strapping young white American should go and kill himself a Filipino. It's horrible, but it's also that that sort of violent Balkan nationalism emerges not just because the Europeans don't care, but because they're willing to encourage that and cement it and make it the core of their national identities because it fits their imperial projects. You know, for the French, encouraging Serb nationalism and radicalism suits them because it worries the Austrians. And the Russians certainly allowing the Serbs to, parts of Serb society to radicalize suits them because it really keeps the Austrians on their toes. You know, the, the Germans are perfectly happy for some random prince to strut around in Bulgaria pretending to be the Tsar <laughs> because it keeps the Austrians, it keeps the Russians on their toes. Yeah. They're all, they're happy to endorse all of these really, really quite twisted national identities because it suits the imperial machinations yeah. of the great powers. Always. And even if you look at the interwar period, you know, everyone's happy to tolerate the Yugoslavs being like how they are because it's just, it's a sense of stability in Yugoslav. They're happy to tolerate the Bulgar, Bulgaria and Greece having battles over mountain passes because it's stable compared to their alter- the alternative. I guess yeah, if we're should... circling back to the question of um, are the Balkans cursed? Yeah, exactly. Would we say that they're, they're cursed because they are sort of at a crossroads between all these different massive empires? Could they have generated their own sort of hegemonic empire in the same area to to resist uh these other empires or or is that I mean, sort if you of a, want, an impossible the only case they do i think to circle to keep the circle going is tito because <laughs> tito builds a, manages to build the yugoslav state and keep it not alive yeah. in the middle of europe you know, I'm not, this is not a pro tito podcast no but but, but it, it's in balkan history it's fascinating to see how tito managed to stop imperial expansions and attempts to, you know, control or seek interest in the Balkan to better what's interest. He managed to stop that for the length of his presidency, of his reign, one would would say. Yeah, at a time when, you know, the Soviets have total dominion over Bulgaria, Romania. Albania was was the most dystopian state in Europe for for a while. No one knows that because it was not aligned, but yeah. Yugoslavia was a fairly chill place to live, all things considered, in former communist countries, and managed to get it, it, it shit together, if I, if I like to say so. Sorry for being that way. But it's prevented all foreign influence from actually influencing it. Like the, 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 the break between Tito and Stalin was massive up to a point where when the French ambassador visited Tito in 56, uh, there was uh, Tito had his own leopard as a pet. Like most of you may have a dog or a cat, but no, Tito had a leopard because, you know, why not? They're um, <laughs> native animals. So he he once received the French ambassador to the presidential palace in Belgrade and said he took a chicken, an old chicken, and said, oh, you know, that's Stalin. He threw it in the garden and said, the ambassador, well, your excellency, please come in. Don't stay in the garden. He then threw the leopard outside where the chicken was running around and the leopard was very hungry and said, well, you know, is that what Yugoslavia holds on? That, that's what that's what will happen if if Stalin tries to meddle, if Stalin tried to meddle with the affairs once more, obviously the leopard ate the chicken. But, you know, that story told by the French ambassador back then was just showing how Tito and the Yugoslavia was... When was that? 55, 56? 56, yeah. Yeah, because that's only five or six years after the <laughs> Yugoslavs 
basically save a rattle with a West over Trieste, yeah, exactly. which they lose. But it's yeah. still this interesting moment where Tito is willing to prove that he's not, you know, I will just, I have my own interests. Yeah. And that's sort of... A, Stalin dead by 56. Yeah, yeah Stalin dead. Stalin dead is 53, but he said, yeah, you know, that's not what so we much have. jeopardy in the anecdote there. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, I think it's just, it's just, uh, it was just a, a way to show the new French ambassador that you know, because like, I'm in that, charge here. Despite it, perfect, perfect, perfect Balkan humor, but yeah, which is obviously very dark and very grim, but yeah. Um, but it's that. I mean, it's you know, we come to to sort of round this up with sort of difficult top, but that question of is the Balkans curses? You've got, you know, the last great sort of Francis Fukuyama's great end of history adventure, the the you know the collapse of Yugoslavia where, you know, arguably the West plays an incredibly imperial role in dictating peace, and but also in preventing quite... So is that, is, is that continuity conflict. then, with um, what we've been talking about, basically uh, the, the Balkans sort of as this cauldron of um, uh, intervention and yeah. nationalist groups defining themselves in opposition to one another? It's still so today, This is yeah. just sort of the yeah. logical culmination of that. But but it ends in a uh, it doesn't end. It doesn't end. Yeah. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't end in the same way I'd say as before because of the uh, I think the extent of the defeat of the of um, the Serbian dictatorship. But it's, I think it's also that attitudes the international attitude towards national identity and nationalism has changed enough that you know no one is willing to simply go oh we're going to just start drawing lines on the map. I mean, it's literally what you told us just last week, which is that the internal borders of Bosnia-Herzegovina are based on where the co- the, the front Gulf. lines were when they called the ceasefire. Yeah, exactly that. And <laughs> which is just been... dumb. Yeah. This is really dumb. <laughs> no, but the, the, the thing is, Western politics, and I mean, international politics, the Balkan has got, got awful, especially today, when we're pushing through, as, as may you ever know, someone say that there is a solution nearby for the recognition of Kosovo from Serbia. Yeah. And a lot of these are basically, once again, redrawing the borders because they're, in, they're, in, uh, they're in, inciting the fact when, you know, we should do land swaps and everything. And there is something you do not touch to the Balkan. These are the borders. Because the borders are built on fragile peace, especially in the former Yugoslav era, and you just can't touch them like that. Oh, yeah, we should do land swaps and remove, relocate populations again, which is something which has been done for centuries and people and scholars and specialists of the region say we have to stop doing that because it doesn't help it doesn't heal anything and once again who proposes that foreign powers once again today the balkans still are so we had the yugoslav era then we had the the milosevic dictatorship we had the collapse the democratic government but once again all of these influences now are different. So you get the Russian one, you get the Chinese one, which uh, Chinese influence is very present in Albania and Serbia today. And obviously you get the EU as well, which uh, Croatia just recently joining Schengen and a lot of the countries aiming to join the country, like Kosovo is setting it as one of the base objectives. Once again, you have, well, the, these are not imperial logics. I mean, China may be defined as one, but or Russia one. But once again, foreign, foreign influences are still there in the region. Obviously there's the American one. And to join what you were saying on that, is this has been a cauldron of people being influenced by foreign influences, and it's still the case today, which you know may keep the curse of the Balkan going, if you were if you were to say. I think it's also this point where we just are willing to ignore this frontier state of the Balkans, even now. I mean, sort of the most typical frontier imperial farce element of it is the existence of North Macedonia. Oof. Like, you know, they've only recently come to an agreement on the name of that nation. 
and a nation that only exists because nobody nobody could agree on who was allowed to have yeah. that land. You know, they've been it's just this patch above Greece to the west of Bulgaria to the east of our. Uh, Albania to the south of Serbia, where no one, the population was not distinctly one way or the other, and everybody had claims on it, but no claim was better than the other, so it's just it's going to belong to no one. We'll create a new nation there. We'll call it Macedonia. But oh, everybody's always everybody claims somebody's claimed Macedonian identity already. Oh, oh dear. Yeah, it's complicated to define Macedonia today still because of the minorities and everything, and and Macedonia was still. Like 15 years ago, there was still a massive insurgency in Macedonia. So, you know, the Albanians, the Albanians were still fighting there. Uh, you got the Army of Liberation of, uh, well, based on the Army of Liberation of Kosovo, you had massive insurgency in Macedonia. Still, people fighting there well, from the Albanian community and say we reject this project of Macedonian identity. We do not adhere by that because there is a massive Albanian minority in Macedonia. And still, yeah, as you say, still having problems defining. What's their identity of Macedonia? So, yeah, it sort of comes back to this point that even it goes back to the, the Greek growth, which is that Balkan, we're sort of used in the West to knowing this is France, this is for the French people, this is Germans, this is for yeah. Germans. And that has always been this principle of imperialism where people go somewhere else and go, ah, yes, an Indian. And the bloke goes, I'm from Gurishat. It's like, yes, but you're an Indian. And the guy's like, I don't fucking know what you're talking about. Yeah. And the West and the imperial powers are just continue to do that to the Balkans mm. and they got to sort of live with that consequence now. Yeah, 2001, the insurgency in uh, in, uh, in Macedonia, which is like, and it's massive, like 100 um, Albanians killed are from the from the militias and 75,000, uh, 70, 75 Macedonian soldiers killed. It was a massive insurgency, it's, it's, 2001. And it's yeah. strong and said, yeah, it's small, but considering the size of the population, Significant, yeah. yeah. So yeah, but considering what we've talked about for the last uh, fifty odd minutes, do you think there is a a path to some some sort of stability in the Balkans, or are the Balkans cursed as we've uh, as we've discussed? Yeah, are they are they merely going to be tossed on the seas of history forever? Yeah, are they are they going to continue being at the being influenced by the likes of um, China and and Russia, or do you think they can find uh, better, greater stability, and and do you, what what role do you think the uh, the EU has to play as sort of a non-state entity, but which has uh, profound effects on institutions and uh, you know rights for for citizens. The EU, as 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 always, as we mentioned, as John and as you mentioned before, the always the logic of stability of having the Balkans stable has been something motivating all the. Powers we mentioned for different reasons, and this is something that has to stop. I mean, in the sense that, of course, everyone wants stability, but but yeah, stability can't be detained from Brussels, can it? The thing is, that what we define stability has been this word, which has been something going on for the Balkan for the last five hundred years, and nobody really knows what it means for the Balkan. And in a way, it seems uh, if we if we can't be stable, at least it will be chill. So. Everyone means one stability, which doesn't mean supporting the best way of governing themselves. And we just see some of the governments in the Balkan as being, well, you know, they're here. So we have to prop them up. So that's why the statue in Bosnia has been propped up. That's why Alexander Vucic in Serbia, which has been clamping down democratic rights and rule of law uh, ever since his party got in power in 2012, uh, has been doing and has been supported, sadly, by most of the EU. The, the thing is, there is, a need, there is a need for a big renewal of politics in the Balkan for foreign politics to see we need to establish exactly what has been going on in the region and what we can do to support, you know, 
something known as a rule of law, something known as democracy, and not just supports everyone we deem as providential and said, oh, he thinks he can bring stability. He sits at the table with, you know, representative of the EU, of the of Russia, of China. Maybe he's a stable man. I'm, I'm not sure if, you, if you're following me through with, the, with my logic, but the thing is, there is a global misconception and misunderstanding of the Balkan, because a lot of, frankly, foreign policy do not take a deep interest in, and we just seem to support the first guy that comes that brings stability. And that was the case for Milosevic when the conflict ended in 1995 before before and Kosovo stepped up. Like a lot of the sanctions were lifted on Yugoslavia because, oh, you know, there's someone providential. He brought an end to the conflict. So maybe, you know, we can rely on him. And that's what the West did for a couple of years before obviously Kosovo started and sanctions started rolling again. So there is a need for a massive renewal of all foreign politics in the region. And Again, listen to what the people of the Balkan are saying, not the ultra-loud nationalist one, but most of the civil society, uh, most of the grassroots politics movement that exists, which are like, we don't want to be cut off from the EU, we don't want to be cut off from the world, but the world powers have to stop supporting and pumping money in corrupt countries and start supporting grassroots movement, which is struggling for democracy. But obviously, that's something that is not, you know, the, the main way of doing things politically. You don't engage in discussions with underground groups, mostly. It is rather complicated to, you know, circumvent national governments. I'm not sure if you're following me through that logic, but... No, it's, well, it is this reflection on, even now, imperial politics in the Balkans, which is that it's in the Again, government, it's yes. these people's interest to talk to the people in power, not the people who are actually in charge. Yeah. Again, but yeah, it's it's complicated, it, and we could be here for hours, yeah, it's, days. Um, it's I mean, so I still I want to keep going, but I also am aware that you know our listeners probably have better things to do. <laughs> I love them, but it's just. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. I want to. It's like oh, I'm still thinking we didn't get to talk about population movement. No, still saying population exchanges. We didn't really get what to talk about the the Eurasian step. Wars. Yeah, I'm sorry, Ed. We didn't get to talk about the Eurasian. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, it's it's like, not too much. It's trying not, to work it into every podcast. It's not going anywhere. No, it's it, true. That's it's true. just it's just so hard to resume a little Balkan. My mind is a mess trying to. Your mind has been Balkanized. Yeah, it's exactly. Hey, I got it back. Oh, oh dear. Okay, we need to end the podcast. We need to end the podcast. <laughs> um, so we do talk about our books. Um, if we. Oh yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will start, which is I'm going to start with a book, a fiction book, Ooh. which is Joseph Roth's Radetzky March, which was written and published in the early 1920. In 19, this is this the English translation of 1951. I think it's the early 20s. It is a book about um, three generations of the Trotter family who are Austrian civil servants and soldiers between 1866. And 1918, and it's about this family in imperial service in an empire that is dying, and it's it's very beautiful and it's very sad, and it's sort of about honor and service and how it all kind of is for nothing and how you don't really know your purpose in this system, but you do it anyway. It's very much a novel of an Austrian man living in a world which no longer has a place for Austria. Mm, wow. Ross is a very interesting, tragic writer in a lot of ways. You know, he, he was a man who fell in love with Berlin just before Berlin, the Nazis came to power, who spent his whole life moving from capital to capital, escaping the horrors of the post-1918 settlement. I recommend the Radetzky March for anybody who's into Austrian history in the 19th century. Mm. And if you want to know what people in the early 20th century thought of it, really. Mm. 
So uh, yeah, so my my book um, is Philip and Alexander by um, Adrian Goldsworthy. In the last podcast, I recommended another Adrian Goldsworthy book as well, um, just because he's so good at writing these uh, these popular histories and, and biographies. And this one specifically is a, a biography of, of Philip II of Macedon and Alexander III of Macedon, uh, or, or better known as Alexander the Great. Yeah. And it details um, both the, uh, the, the, the political situation, the kingdom, the biographies of, of both men, uh, military matters, the conquest of the Persian Empire. But, but the way it's framed, I found it fascinating for two reasons. And the, the, the first reason is that it, it is the first and, and only book I've read, really, which tackles uh, the question of what is Macedonian society like and tries to look at it from a, a neutral perspective. You know, obviously our, our sources are all biased, but what can we read into these sources to to get a good picture of what the uh, the kingdom was really like? Mm. And uh, second, the book challenges the uh, the greatness of Alexander, which I think is really important. The name of the book is Philip and Alexander. It, Philip II, Alexander's dad, is in many ways a far more important figure in ancient history than mm. Alexander is. But obviously, Alexander is the one that is uh, that is lionized for his conquest mm. um and yeah it's a big book full of you know great writing great information and i uh, i recommend it to anyone interested in uh the ancient history of the balkans so uh so um i'm sorry but i'm going to keep it to my fellow countrymen i i reckon my book would be this one which is the balkanic the balkan discourse from paul gard which is known to be the most, the most important, one of the most prominent Balkan specialists in Europe and the world, who's now deceased. And this book is mostly an introduction to the Balkan and has been something trying to define what the Balkan are. As you see, we've struggled for it for an hour and struggled to define the logic and the peninsula. And Polgard tries to explain that. He tries to explain how a national identity is built, how, 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 how the migration affected the entirety of the peninsula, how it affected the politics, how foreign policies um, influenced the way the people govern themselves and has been defining everything, defining the communities, defining the nation, defining the difference between country and nation, which is a fundamental difference to understand the Balkan if you were to understand Balkan countries. And this has been, you know, a very important book during my during my studies, during my doing my work and research, and is something I can recommend to French to the French speaking audience. I hope there are French speaking people here, and uh, <laughs> and it's been something. Yeah, which has been a great book, which is four, which is 600 pages of Balkan, which is, you know, 400 pages of Balkan, which, you know, is something. Oh, it's beautiful number. Yeah. 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 But is something crucial, I think. It's one of the best books written, and God knows I've read quite a book, uh, quite quite a few, which is something crucial to help you understand how the body hell this peninsula works, if it works at all. I mean, it is interesting to me that, like, there's quite clearly for what you said and what we spoke before, there's massive there's a massive piece of French historiography about <coughs> Balkans. And then it's this important part of like when does continental studies that in France you look at the Balkans, whereas in England we know. Like uh, people the fact people, that it's an even a, an, an English equivalent to that to yeah. that book that I can no, think no, of. No, people would not and people don't really do the Balkans. It's not this yeah, but yeah. Oh, we're getting that's another pog. Oh god. Yeah, yeah, but you know, just just to end that also to serve it, there is true, there is an interest in French scholars, but that also is a liability. And we've seen that during the Yugoslav Wars when obviously 
you had to have restraint, but you had a lot of pro-Serb elements in the in the French in the French diplomacy. Obviously, the Serbs were not only guilty of war crimes in Croatia. Croatia also was in Franjo Tuđman, the first current president, also was to be sentenced, also was to be tried tried to the Hague, but died before. Yeah. But obviously, the Serbs were whether the main actors of a lot of the crimes going on in the Balkan, and you had a lot of pro-Serb elements in the French diplomacy because of all the of all the links that existed before and the knowledge we gained. So obviously, it's both a bad thing as per what happened during the Yugoslav conflict, but also is a good thing in the sense that, yeah, we have some books and historiography going on around here, but yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. As as you can see, we can keep peeling this Balkan onion for hours and hours and hours, but um, I'm sure we'll come back. I'm sure we'll have you back on, Joss. I mean, I'd really love to talk you know, perhaps about what it's like to talk about imperialism in France and oh, the definitely. Yeah. public state and like definitely. both within academia and the public discourse around imperialism is um the national novel of uh, the national novel, to... yes, exactly. Yeah. Um and probably back to the Balkans because Ed didn't get his Eurasian step. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. No, 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 we'll, yeah, we'll do so a specific sorry. episode. Yeah. I want to do that's geography and empire. That's, yeah, fair. Um, that's fair. That's pop fair. Pop it in the spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. Um, but I'd like to once again thank everyone who's been listening to the podcast, who's been sharing us around. Um, you know, uh, it's been great so far. I'm looking forward to seeing how far we can go with this, and I'm looking forward to getting yeah. more guests on. So if so, please follow us at Podcast Packs on Twitter. Email us at packshistorypodcast@gmail.com. Leave us good reviews on iTunes. Um, yes, tell please. your friends. If you meet Boris Johnson, tell him he's a knob. That's, that's just a general And then recommend the podcast to him. And then recommend the podcast to him. <laughs> you might learn <laughs> something. All right. So, okay. Yeah, well, thank, you, thank you very much for joining us, Joss. Thank yes. you, everyone. Thank you, Edward. Thank you, John, for the invitation. It was a real pleasure. And see and you we'll all soon. We'll see you all yeah. soon.